wait, no. <laughs> yeah, start with saying hi. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And we are back for episode seven, where we'll be discussing Henrietta Lacks. And when I say this woman's name, I don't know how many of you would actually recognize it. And that is exactly why we are discussing Henrietta today, because so many people don't know her name, but all of us have been affected by her in some type of way. And this is because Henrietta cells, known as the HeLa cells, are the first immortal cell line, and they have led to some of the greatest medical advancements in modern history. But the story of Henrietta and the HeLa cells is much more complicated than you may think. But before we get into that, Alicia, what do you know about Henrietta and the HeLa cells? I know that I should know more than I do. And uh-huh. I will be vulnerable in this space and be honest about that and honest about my lack of knowledge. All I know about Henrietta Lacks is that she was a Black woman who her cells were the root of this immortal cell line that now mm-hmm. we use in a ton of research. Yep. Um, and I don't really know much else beyond that Like I haven't read her book, so I don't know the story. So I'm very excited to learn. And I think this is just going to be a catalyst for me to continue to learn more and do more and just be better because this is definitely something I could have known more about and should know more about. Yeah, it's great. I mean, honestly, before I heard about the book, which is the book that Alicia referenced is actually like the one source I use for this entire episode, like literally was the only source. And it's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And it is the holy grail book for this topic because before the book and before the author spent her whole career writing the book, there was no like comprehensive amount of information on this story. So yeah, I didn't know much about her until my, one of my friends told me about the book. So great. So let's get into things so we can learn all about this story. Yes, let's do it. the relationship between Henrietta and the HeLa cells, we are going to compare them as if they are identical twins. The first twin is that quieter one who is a homebody. She's the caregiver who's always fussing around in the background while being overshadowed by her twin. She's easily forgotten. Her sister, however, is the star athlete. She is popular and all the top universities are recruiting for her to play for them. She's that kind of popular that makes you feel like just a look from her will change your life. And maybe it does because she has that incredible smile that just rocks your world. And it's important here that these twins are identical because when identical twins are formed, the newly fertilized egg, which has become an embryo, splits into two identical embryos. These two babies are scientifically exactly the same. They come from the same DNA, just like Henrietta in the HeLa cells. But each twin in the story deserves their own time. So we're going to start off by talking about Henrietta first. Exciting! Henrietta Lacks was a woman of African-American descent, born on August 1st in 1920 in Virginia. At a young age, Henrietta's mother passed away and her father split the children up among the relatives. This resulted in Henrietta ending up living with her grandpa Tommy and a bunch of her cousins. They were truly her family and her friends. Growing up, Henrietta stayed in school much longer than her cousins, all the way until the sixth grade. And her other cousins, I believe, stayed till about the third grade. She had twice the education. And then when she wasn't in school, she was working in the tobacco fields with her family, the same fields that her grandparents had once been enslaved on. When they were not in the fields, Henrietta and her cousins were honestly just kids. They swam in the rivers, they stayed up late, and they joked around. And everyone, like everyone in town, would talk about how beautiful Henrietta was. She had a beautiful smile, walnut eyes, full lips, a square jaw, thick hips. She had the whole packet going for her. And since she was so beautiful, she had plenty of suitors. And Alicia, who do you think these suitors were who were so interested in Henrietta? Uh, probably some like awful white men. Was I don't it? I love that, but no. Oh, um, shoot. You were never going to get this. 
<laughs> Henrietta's first suitor was her cousin Joe. Cousin Joe asked Henrietta on a date, and she said no. So he tried to kill himself. Oh, what? Yeah, he was so broken up that he that she denied him. So then he was nicknamed Crazy Joe. And Crazy Joe, no. <laughs> Crazy Joe later actually killed himself when Henrietta chose to marry her other cousin, Day. <gasps> oh my god. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Day and Henrietta lived, they grew up together in Grandpa Tommy's house. Um, and Day was about, I think, six and Henrietta was four when they first started living together. So they literally grew up together. At the age of 20, they got married. And at that point, they already had two children between them. Wow. I think their first kid was born when Henrietta was 14. Oh my God. So very young. And Throughout the years of their marriage, they have four more children, rounding up Henrietta's family to six children, Lawrence, Ellis, Deborah, Zachariah, Abdul, and David Jr. And Henrietta was a great mom and a really fun gal. She apparently made a killer rice pudding and she loved playing cards. I love And sometimes, you're going to love this, and sometimes at night she would sneak out of the house with her girlfriends and go to the town bars just to dance. Oh! <laughs> God, I do love that. <laughs> a woman of my own heart. Um, but most of all, she loved being a mom and having children, and she never wanted to really stop having children. However, around the time she was having her last couple of kids, something felt really wrong, like specifically in her reproductive region. And Henrietta started to feel intense pain while having sex. And at first, she brushed it off as just being from one of her recent pregnancies. Or, you know, just from the syphilis that Day kept bringing home oh. from sleeping with other women. Oh, what? Yeah. Henrietta would have STDs a lot. She had syphilis a lot. She had gonorrhea a lot. She had all these things from her husband. So, Do you know great. if she ever got treated for these things? Maybe it wasn't possible even at the time. Um, I don't think, I don't think penicillin was discovered yet. Because yeah, it was like the twenties and thirties, but she, because of those other things going on, she was like, "Okay, this pain is nothing to worry about." But after about a year or so, she was determined. She knew something was up. So Henrietta decided to take matters into her own hands, and she was going to figure out what the heck was wrong. So she one day just filled up her bathtub, hopped in the bathtub, and started feeling around her cervix. That's really high up there. I know. <laughs> She felt a really hard lump on her cervix, and she knew that she wasn't crazy when she felt this. She knew something was seriously wrong. So she went to the doctor and was soon referred to John Hopkins for a better examination. And do you know why she went to Hopkins specifically? Like, she's living in Virginia, like, in the area where people go to Hopkins. But, like, why would she be referred to Hopkins? Maybe because it was a big research institution. So they were like, ah, maybe they know what's wrong with you. No. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a reason. Like the doctor wasn't really sure what was going on and or just knew it was more serious and she needed a big hospital. Okay. But another part is that even like aside from it being a great hospital, even at the time, it was the, one of the only hospitals in the area that cared for a black patient. Baltimore. Yeah. Yep. And they also offered care at no cost or low cost mm. to underserved patients. And this was at a time when like black patients will go to hospitals and literally be denied. So right. the fact that Hopkins accepted black patients was a really big deal. And in January, 1951, when Henrietta was 31 years old, a gynecologist took a sample on the lump of her cervix while she sat in the colored ward of the hospital. And when Henrietta was discharged, the physician was surprised to see a note on her medical record stating that she had given birth to her last child at Hopkins and there was no note of any abnormality on her cervix. So I want to like stop for a second and mention that, remember, Henrietta had felt that something was wrong for a long time, like before her yeah. last pregnancy, which shows that there was already something happening with her cervix. And then she went through mm -hmm. that whole pregnancy, gave birth at Hopkins in the hospital, and there was no note of anything being wrong. Um, do you notice any like themes or missing pieces in like how yes, this something's Henrietta? fishy? Something yeah. is fishy. That doctor that delivered her baby probably just like they either failed to notice it or they didn't 
they noticed it and they didn't make a note of it, which both those are not okay and not what you'd like from your physician. Yeah. Yeah. Or they weren't like listening to her complaints or. Oh, I bet it was that. Yeah. Just there's so many things that could have happened. And so when the doctor called Henrietta a couple days later after she visited Hopkins, she found out that she was diagnosed with stage one epidermoid carcinoma of the cervix, which is cervical cancer. Oh no. And many years later, doctors were discovered that her cancer was likely caused by an HPV infection. Oh, day. I know. Day. Day. What were you doing? So bad. Yes. So after her diagnosis, the doctors began doing radiation treatments where they would place the radium in her cervix. And I found this crazy because they literally like wrapped up this radioactive material and then put it in her body. Like that's just like how they did radiation then, which I didn't realize. Crazy. And she went through multiple rounds of this radiation, never making any indication that she was going through any pain. Like she was a true trooper. She continued to be a mother and was a positive member of the community. But it was not all so like happy-go-lucky because once Henrietta began to feel better, she wanted to have more children. And she brought this up to a doctor and she was shocked to find out that she was actually infertile now. She did not know that her cancer treatments would cause infertility. And in the medical record, it states that Henrietta said if she knew she would be infertile from her treatment, she would have never gotten radiation. So already seeing some problems with communication here. Yeah. And this is where things really started to go downhill for Henrietta because after she started feeling better, she started feeling worse suddenly. And she was thinking something has got to be wrong. And she went to the doctor several times and was sent home every single time dismissed. And it wasn't until Henrietta demanded that she was seen that the doctors listened. And I want to read you exactly what the record says here. It says that patient has been complaining bitterly of pain and seems genuinely miserable. She's come in from a considerable distance and has felt that she deserves to be in the hospital where she can be cared for. So snaps Henrietta for sticking up for herself and advocating for herself because she yeah. kept going and saying, like, I feel like the cancer's back. And the doctors were like, no, you're fine. Just go home. And she eventually was just like, no, listen to me. Like, I need help. And yeah. they finally admitted her to the hospital. Self-advocacy is so important. And that's something I'm like, I knew, but now I'm like really seeing it. And in this example, and just like examples with like patients that I'm meeting through my classes and stuff. It's, it's so important. Right. Especially if you think of the times here, Henrietta is a poor black woman. So those are three things against her right there for people listening to her. Like she really needs to just stand up for herself, but she shouldn't have to. It's the sad part. Yeah. And once Henrietta was admitted, things had gotten too far. Sadly, her tumors had spread considerably and there was no amount of radiation or pain therapy that could help her. Her doctors were actually so desperate that at one point they injected alcohol into her spine to try and relieve some pain. And while she sat in pain, she watched her children play in the hospital grass. And at the end of October, just nine months after she was diagnosed, Henrietta died. Oh, no. So this is the end of the little segment about Henrietta's life. Do you have any questions specifically about her? Um, How old was she when she died? I think she was 31 or 32 because she was diagnosed at 31 and she died soon after. Yeah, super young, especially for cancer. Well, this isn't the end of the story for Henrietta, though, because remember uh, that other twin I mentioned, the popular one with the exact same DNA? Well, she's actually a part of Henrietta. They literally have the same DNA because the twin is the HeLa cells. And what are the HeLa cells, you may ask? Well, We're going to get into that now. So when Henrietta went into her first consult for her cervical cancer tumor, the doctor took that sample for testing. Remember, they scraped it away, and then they called back later and said, you have cancer. Yeah. But when that sample was taken, it was also a little piece of it was taken across the hall to the lab of George Guy. And Guy was the head of the tissue culture department at Hopkins, and he was on a mission to create the first immortal cell line meaning that he wanted to create a line of cells that could grow from this original source and they could never die, so they could continuously study them. Okay. And Gay had teamed up with another doctor at Hopkins where they decided to take 
tissue samples from every woman who came to Hopkins with cervical cancer. Like what? every single one. Yeah. Because the doctor that he teamed up with, I believe I remember correctly. Well, he was definitely an oncologist, but I think he helped create the pap smear. So he was like oh. really into cervical cancer. And okay. Such. I was going to ask like why cervical cancer, but okay. This makes sense. It's like, yeah, he was on a mission to cure cervical cancer or at least figure okay. it out. So that's why they are targeting those patients. And they didn't ask any of these patients for permission to take their cells. They oh, just like straight up took them. My God. Yeah. So after Henrietta's appointment, she like, you know, got back in her rusty old car with her cheating husband and went home to her small town. And her cells were carefully placed in a medium that was like optimized for cell replication and labeled HeLa, which stands for Henrietta Lacks. Right. Now the Guy Lab had been conducting experiments for a while now on all these cell cultures, trying to create an immortal line of cells. However, every single one of them died. Like every single time, except for Henrietta. Hers was the first cells to not die and to continue replicating in like in the test tube. And Alicia, do you know why this is important for research or what have maybe even caused this to happen? Like why her cells were doing this? Like think like really scientifically. Oh, I was going to say, cause it's like cancer, but it is cancerous cells, but what makes cancer cells like continue to replicate? Bro, my quiz not is not until next week. Like I'm <laughs> not. Okay. I'm not ready. Um, let me think. Well, that's okay. I'm gonna explain no, it. Don't worry. I want to think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, like a mutation in like a tumor suppressor gene, and that kept the tumors from being suppressed, and so they were continuously active. Maybe it was like I mean that's correct for cancer cells, but I don't know if that applied to Henrietta or not. Okay, just tell me. Okay. Okay. So. Why is this possible? Why are her cells able to keep replicating like this? Like nothing, no other cells were able to do this up to this point that scientists were studying. And scientists did not understand this at first, but down the line by studying Henrietta's cells, they actually were able to figure this out. So at the end of cells, at the end of each chromosome, there was a portion of DNA called the telomere. Oh, she had that telomerase. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> let me explain this for our listeners who might not understand what we're talking about. I got it. So if you imagine a scarf, and the scarf is tightly knit, and our scarf is purple because I like the color purple. And at the end of the scarf, there's this blue portion. So if you imagine this purple scarf, the purple yarn in the scarf is our DNA which is like our blueprint for how to create a human. And it is tightly wound to create the chromosome, which is our scarf. And the blue ending is our telomere. Now imagine that each time your cell replicates, you pull on the loose yarn at the blue end and some becomes unraveled. And this process repeats until there's no more blue yarn left and suddenly you start to unravel the purple yarn. And this is exactly what happens in cells and is theorized to be the reason for aging. However, in mutant cancer cells such as Henrietta's, there's a pair of needles coming behind that unraveled blue yarn to put it back into the scarf. So that scarf is always complete. And in the presence of those needles per se, the scarf never unravels. Or in Henrietta's case, the HeLa cells never die. So, wow, that was a great cells. analogy. I Thank you. Wow, I wish my professors, not that I don't love you, I wish they would... <laughs> Use things like that. Use knitting. (laughs) Knitting. Knitting is also underrated. (laughs) Yes, I agree. It's very calming. Um, But the needles for any of you scientific people would be like the telomerases. Yeah, putting the telomeres back at the end. All right, so the ability of Henrietta's cells to continuously replicate gave scientists a source to study the exact cells over and over again, like Alicia just said which meant that they could expose these cells to different types of radiation and cancer drugs in an attempt to cure cancer. It meant they could watch the cells divide, allowing scientists to learn about cell growth. It meant that there was an everlasting source of a consistent amount of cells for scientists to grow medical knowledge from. And they did just that. That's crazy. Guy started to send the HeLa cells to anyone who could get their hands on them. And before long, the HeLa cells were being studied across the world. And medical advancements that have occurred over the next 40 years since the HeLa cells were stolen from Henrietta's cervix are truly remarkable. 
But I don't want to talk about those discoveries just yet, because first we have a couple of other pressing issues to talk about concerning her cells. So first, I want to point out the contrast in the treatment and respect between the HeLa cells in actual human beings. So as I mentioned before, Henrietta passed soon after her diagnosis, but of course the HeLa cells, a piece of her, lived on. While these cells lived on, they were handled with the utmost care as the medical world ranted and raved about how amazing they were. Right. Guy was even on TV at one point talking about this new cell line, mm-hmm. but he never mentioned that the cells were stolen from this dying woman. Of course he not. He never even took the chance to meet Henrietta. Instead, he would just ask his assistants to try and get more cells from her, and only when she was dying did he have enough courage to lean over her in her hospital bed and tell her that her cells would make her immortal. Wow. What a guy, guy. What a guy, guy. Mm. So as Henrietta lay dying, her medical records stated that she was a miserable specimen. Not a patient, a specimen. That's like what her record said. That's and awful. after her death, her children continued to live with their father. And Henrietta's children were honestly tortured by other family members. It's really terrible and you can read the book to learn about it um, but they were traumatized and they missed their mom but little did they know that there were still forms of her in the form of billions of cells in laboratories across the world and it wasn't until mm-hmm. 1973 that the lax family learned that henrietta cells were out in the world 1973 yeah oh my god so many years later like 21 years later i think A year later, Hopkins decided they wanted to test Henrietta's children to see if they could learn more about the HeLa cells. This is a year after after the family finds out that these cells are in existence. Hopkins are like, oh my God, this family still exists. We got to go get more blood from them. So they went to the lax's home and took blood, claiming that it was for cancer testing, but that was a lie. And there was no informed consent taking place. They just took their blood to do more DNA testing on it and never even got back to them, leaving the children terrified that maybe they had cancer because they never heard back from the doctors. Henrietta's cells were praised, but her family was repeatedly lied to and dismissed. After they found out about the HeLa cells, they wanted to learn more about their mother and why they had never received any money or recognition for the cell line. They were frustrated that their mother's cells could cure so many diseases, but they couldn't even afford to go to the doctor. Yeah. So there's a huge contrast between the cells and her family. Yeah, definitely. And that contrast doesn't end like with her family. And this is best explained with the creation of the Gila factory in Tuskegee, Alabama. Oh my God. Is that the same place that the Tuskegee syphilis oh. study was? Oh, sweet. <gasps> oh, Wait, oh my so God. What a- the year is 1951, right after the Gila cells were taken. And the United States is going through a polio epidemic. Kids were super sick. Oh, yeah. And the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis was created by President Roosevelt who had polio and the foundation's goal was to find a vaccine for polio. And they turned to guy with an interest in his HeLa cell line because guy had just discovered the cells and he had just discovered that they were susceptible to infection from disease. So now they were able to use the cells to like test out things like that. So the NFIP, that foundation saw this opportunity to use the cells and started to fund money into the creation of more and more and more HeLa cells. So they went to a prominent black university, Tuskegee Institute, and created the Gila factory. Uh And this location was specifically chosen in order to provide numerous opportunities for black scientists at the university. And I mean, it achieved its goal. The Gila factory was pumping out, guess how many cells they made a week? Just a ballpark. 10 million? They made six trillion Gila cells a week. Six trillion? Yeah. And all those went towards polio research. And the staff at this factory comprised mainly of black scientists and of black women, which you're like thinking like, oh my God, this is so amazing for civil rights history. It's like the 50s. I mean, not really. I know know. there's a caveat. just wait. (laughs) Yeah. So you're like, it's the 50s. There's still segregation. There's this team of black scientists using a black woman's cells to change medicine. You know, amazing. Even though the medicine is used on white people, but. But in this exact same location, at this same university, at the HeLa cell factory was taking place, there was another research project going on. Oh, my God. This research project was, Alicia. The Tuskegee syphilis study. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. This study 
that allowed for 600 black men to have syphilis for 40 years. They never treated them at, and half the oh. men didn't even know they had the disease. Yeah. So yeah. 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 The stark contrast between like the money, the funding, the praise, the love, everything that he lost sales got the cell stolen from this black woman and the treatment of black Americans by the field of medicine is honestly astonishing. It's atrocious. It's disgusting. But, you know, yeah, don't get me wrong. The HeLa cells are incredible. But the actions that took place around them is not only disrespectful to the medical community, but it's disrespectful to the cells themselves. And the disrespect did not end there because right. it wasn't enough for the HeLa cells to be taken unethically from Henrietta. Oh, it wasn't. You know, more unethical things had to happen because in 1954, a cancer researcher by the name of Southman wondered what would happen if he injected the actively replicating HeLa cells because, you know, they're always replicating into one of his cancer patients. This man injected active cancer cells into another person's body. And he did not ask their permission, not once. And within two years, he had begun injecting the HeLa cells into prisoners and into every single gynecological patient that came into the hospital he worked at. Literally, why? Was he like... He wanted to see if you put cancer cells into a body that didn't have cancer, if they would replicate, which they did. And people got super sick. Like one patient of his started getting cancer in their lymph nodes, which is super bad because then it can just go across the whole body. Yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, he was inserting into tons of people. And this like kept going on. The madness did not end until a research study based around this method, began at a new hospital. And when the group of researchers were asked to insert the HeLa cells into the patients without their consent, three doctors protested. And do you know what were like the guidelines or the argument these doctors may have used for this unethical practice? Like think we're in the 50s and 60s, like what just happened in the world that would make doctors be like, this is unethical? Oh, the Holocaust. Was it like testing? Yeah, testing on like prisoners of war and such. So in the realm of World War II, um, there were the Nuremberg trials, which were these trials that took place to charge the Nazis for their war crimes and their crimes against humanity. A portion of these trials were held on the Nazi doctors, and the results of the trial created a list of ethics for doctors to follow. However, the ethics were not law in the United States. So the misuse of the HeLa cells was not illegal. But it did cause an outcry that led to advancements in informed consent and human research. However, it wasn't until 1974, which was 20 years after this incident happened, that there was a federal law requiring informed consent. So this story was shocking, to me at least, and I'm sure to everyone, because the use of the HeLa cells up to this moment have done a lot of things, of great things for humanity, honestly. But this was on a whole new level of terrible. Not only were her cells taken unethically, but they were used to hurt people. And because other patients had to go through the terrible pain that Henrietta once felt, the pain that she died from. The Henrietta cells went through a lot, like a lot. And I didn't even go over half of it, honestly. And Henrietta and her family weren't ever really given the credit they deserve. The world didn't even know who Henrietta was for an extended amount of time. And when they did find out that the donor of these HeLa cells was a poor Black woman, the media blew up. I mean, people were super angry, and rightfully so, because Henrietta's background was released to the media, and it was just another tick on the long list of ways that white doctors had used Black bodies to their advantage. And they had no care for the patients that they were using. Like, the doctors referred to Henrietta as a specimen. The way that science put on actual science, like the lab benchwork science, had far outweighed the amount of effort they put into patient care, which is just blatantly wrong. Science and medical advancements are for the betterment of society and for our health. It is ultimately all for the patient. So shouldn't the patient whose literal flesh is assisting in that research be honored and respected? of course. So the story of Henrietta and the HeLa cells is, like I said, even longer, has any more facets than what we talked about. But I really just wanted to talk about different parts of this history that would contrast the interaction between the patient and the cells, specifically to set up our discussion. Um, But if you do want to learn more about Henrietta and get like the whole full-fledged history that would have taken multiple hours to talk about here, I highly recommend reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. 
like I said before, it's where I got like 98% of this information and is your holy grail for this story. But before we end the history, I want to give Henrietta and the Gila cells the honor they deserve. Because despite the numerous problematic parts of the story, the Lax family has stated that they are happy their mother has contributed to humanity in so many ways. They think that she would have liked that she helped so many people. So here are the ways that Henrietta has changed the world. So first, to give you an idea of how many HeLa cells have been made from that very first sample all those years ago, about 70 years ago, if you took all of the HeLa cells ever created, mm-hmm. it would weigh 50 million metric tons. Oh my gosh. If you took her cells and you lined them up oh next God. to each other, like as if they were holding hands and wrapped them around the earth, they would wrap around the earth at least three times. <laughs> yeah. And then if you took Henrietta, who at her best was five feet tall, and stacked her on top of herself 70 million times. That's how tall the Gila cells would span. 70 million. Super <laughs> tall. Wow. Yeah. So that's how many cells have in existence. And as of 2018, according to the NIH, there has been 110,000 publications involving the Gila cells across 142 countries. So literally the world has studied them. And from these HeLa cells, there's numerous contributions to medicine, and I'm going to name just a few. So we have the polio vaccine was created. They studied the effects of outer space on human cells because, yes, they literally sent the cells to space to see how our astronauts would fare out there. Discovered treatments for blood disorders. Studied the effects of x-rays on our cells. They discovered the source of salmonella infection. They created methods to slow cancer growth and create chemotherapy. They mapped the entire human genome through the Human Genome Project. They learned more about cervical cancer since her cells were cervical cancer cells. They gained a better understanding of the origins of tuberculosis. In vitro fertilization was pioneered. Um, The infectivity of Ebola and HIV and just all of studying viruses from her cells. The 2008 Nobel Prize for the discovery of HPV, its role in cervical cancer from her cells. The 2009 Nobel Prize for the research on telomeres Mm -hmm. was based on HeLa cells. And the 2014 Nobel Prize for advancements of live viewing of cell growth was from HeLa cells. So all this has been touched by her cells, which is why her story is so important and why we need to talk about it. So... Are you ready to talk about it, Alicia? <laughs> yeah, I think I need to okay, unpack that. Okay, let's do that. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right, Alicia. So let's unpack some things. What are your first thoughts? The first things I wrote down Mm -hmm. were just trends that I saw so I was thinking of the lies that I was seeing Mm -hmm. or that I was hearing about a lot in terms of the lies that doctors were consistently telling their patients and it got me thinking about the ways in which doctors lie to their patients and like if that's intentional or unintentional because in Mm -hmm. this case it was certainly intentional um But I think that's something that I'm thinking about now is how do I effectively communicate so as not to accidentally spread lies because I don't want to be like these doctors. And then I also was just thinking about, first of all, the miracle Mm -hmm. that is this woman's cells. They're just so incredible. And hearing that list, that's probably a non-exhaustive list of treatments and therapies and scientific discoveries and breakthroughs that we have made because of her cells I think what really really shocked me about that was that I had no idea that we had no idea and I agree that's just crazy that even those cell lines like I worked in a lab and granted I didn't do cell research cell bio research but 
just thinking about it, I don't really know the sources of where I would get the yeah. materials for my experiments, you know? Like, if my PI just handed me a cell line and he said, these are the cells that we work with and this is the experimentation we're going to do yeah. on them, I'd be like, okay, cool. Not thinking about the probably thousands and thousands of dollars that we paid for those cells because that's why, like, research needs so much funding because paying for the time and right. labor and materials is so expensive and just thinking about how much money the HeLa cells and even derivatives like years and years later derivatives of these cells how much that costs it's shocking to me that they're like all of that money is going to sources that does not include the family mm-hmm. so I think my thoughts are kind of everywhere yeah, I feel that. I think to the point of like, you don't know where the cells came from. In the book, the author talks about her own journey of learning about Henrietta. There was this moment where the author was talking to a friend, I think, just really casually about, about the HeLa cells, about Henrietta. And this dude was like, oh my God, I work on the HeLa cells, like in my lab, that he was working on these cells and he had no idea the history behind them. He felt so bad and he was like, oh my God, these cells were stolen from someone and I've just been like working on them, not even thinking about it. Yeah, one of our friends, I remember um, our friend Emily was telling us or telling me at least about how in her lab that she works in, she was working on HeLa cells and she had no idea. And I think- (gasps) Yeah, it just hits so close to home, and and it it really shocked me. And not in the way that was like, Emily, how could you not know? In the way that was like, I'm not surprised that you don't know because it's just not something that we talk about, and that's yeah. so not okay. All right. While listening to Henrietta's story in the Heel of Cells, how did intersectionality play a role in how she's treated as a patient? What are the different identity pieces and how do they interact with each other yes we specifically talked about how she was a black woman so that's two because african-american woman and she was from like a disadvantaged background like she came from like a poor rural area in alabama um i think she grew up in virginia Virginia, wow. Oh, right, right, Virginia, because she went to Hopkins. So those three things, those are pieces of her identity that intersect in the ways that she experienced discrimination because that's important for intersectionality, as we remember from episode four. And so Mm -hmm. I think one part of the story that really struck me was when you said that she did not want to receive radiation treatment but they didn't Mm -hmm. listen to her. And I think that is just key and like so unforgivably common, not listening to their patients and what their patients want, giving the patients the space to make informed decisions. And something that we've been talking about a lot Mm -hmm. in my like doctoring class is that we're moving, trying to move medicine away from this like paternalistic view in which the doctor makes a decision for you and move it towards this shared space where you are making decisions about your own health with the guidance of your doctor. So you're discussing it and it's more mm-hmm. dis- like discussion-based. And of course right. that did not exist for her. No. I feel like if you were to look at her as a wealthy white man, I mean, that's like the trifecta yeah. right there. It is. (laughs) Like, that's what I want to be, but I can't. So this poor black woman is, of course, getting completely cast aside constantly. And I Mm -hmm. also find it interesting that this guy dude is working at a hospital that's like one of the only hospitals in the area that's treating black patients. And he's doing his experiments and he's taking these samples from people without asking. I feel like... I mean, and I can't speak for him, but I imagine that that, something like that would not fly at a prominently white hospital. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think just the fact that she was in the colored ward of the hospital and she didn't have enough money to even go to more established private practice or clinic. She had to go to the hospital specifically with Black populations and underserved populations. So she's like, 
has all these factors that are against her and putting her in a situation being used. And then on top of it all, she's a woman in the 1900s where you were taught to be quiet and no one listened to you. So then she had to literally like yell at the doctors for her to even be admitted to a hospital while she was dying. All these factors kept building up, I think, as she went through her care and really led to her, I think, her death so quickly after being diagnosed. I mean, her cancer, granted, was extremely aggressive, but even like in the first place, she knew for so long that something was wrong, but she didn't have a space where she could bring up her concerns until it got so bad that she tried to figure it out herself. And I think Um, like bringing in her background into this just emphasizes and highlights like health literacy and how important that is because we were touching on this idea of self-advocacy and how that's so key these days. But even today, there's a lack of health literacy, which means like having knowledge about your own health and like what health things impact you. And I feel like that also kind of stemmed from her lack of education and her like disadvantaged, like poor background. Moving on to the next question. These questions are all very like very similar, but also very different topics at the same time. So since this has all gone down, Henrietta's family has not really received like a much compensation for the cells or just their troubles in general, or even just like any recognition they deserve. And there was a portion of the book that talked about how cell line donors aren't usually paid for some reason. So that's one of the reasons they haven't gotten any compensation. But how do you think the medical community should compensate or pay or just pay their respects in general to patients such as Henrietta who have profoundly changed medicine through the study or just the experimentation of their body. I did not realize that cell line donors don't get paid. Yeah, there was like a whole court case that the book talked about where this like other dude was getting treatment for something and his doctor like made him come back and get tested all the time. He thought it was like for his health, but really the doctor was like collecting more and more cells to like grow this cell line. And then the doctor made like millions of dollars off this cell line and the dude, like, never got money from it. It, like, was a huge scandal. See, like, how is that ethical? I just don't. No idea. I think, okay, I think if you sign an affidavit or something saying that you are willingly giving your, you're donating your cell lines to science. It's like donating your body to science. Like, yeah. then I understand that, like, you're not going to get compensated because you are voluntarily giving this up but if you had no idea if you did not go through the informed consent process yeah if I was a judge I'd be like this ruling is trash unless there's a formed sign that says I am donating my cell lines for the purpose of this study then I think compensation is required a hundred percent And that's especially what I'm most frustrated about in terms of the HeLa cells in Henrietta Lacks' life is just that her family wasn't compensated at all and they didn't find out until years later. It is too late to remedy this Mm -hmm. fully, but we can. I mean, I don't know what state her family is in now, but I'm hoping that they are not just comfortable, but more than comfortable because they deserve to Mm -hmm. be. Because if my mom's cells were divided so many times that they were enough to weigh five metric tons, I want to be, like, rich. Yeah. No, they're definitely not, sadly. They've never been compensated. Their family has gone through so much emotional trauma. And I think when I think about how we should pay our respects to people whose bodies have been experimented on, Henrietta or even Lucy and Betsy and Anarka, all of these stories that talk about how people have been used for science, we need to talk about them. We're in medical school. We understand how fast the lectures go. And there's not a lot of time to talk about extra things. But if there's enough time to mention that this scientist created this, there's enough time to mention that this cell is from this person. A hundred Or that this unethical thing happened. It takes... 30 more seconds in a lecture to talk about. And I just think it's like so important to spend that time talking about that. I 100% agree. I wish we would acknowledge, that was the other thing I was going to say is that I wish we would acknowledge the source of these cell lines. But one thing I was thinking is like, maybe these cell lines are so far replicated that we don't even know if the cells, but I feel like we can safely argue 
that probably all self-replicating cell lines are born from HeLa cells. Oh my God, I want to hear something crazy about that. So the HeLa cells, oh my God, these these cells, Alicia, they're more insane than you could ever imagine, truly. They got so big that there were like all these great things. People were like, oh my God, so great, love HeLa cells. And then there was this big conference and this like a dude got on stage and just shattered everyone's world because he had figured out that there was this epigenetic marker on a gene in the cell line that specifically is in black populations. So you can use that marker to figure out if the cells you're working with have HeLa cells in them. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So for people who don't know what epigenetic markers are. Yeah, it's like a little name tag, like on your on your scarf. Exactly. It has this epigenetic marker. And through that, they figured out that the HeLa cells had infected other cell cultures across the world because the HeLa cells can travel on dust particles in the air. <laughs> They're like super particle. They're like super cells. I'm just imagining like a little cell with like a cape, like flying on a dust mite. And like they replicate so quickly that if they got into another cell culture, they could overtake those cells that were being studied. So this dude went on stage and was like, yo, I discovered this. And it turns out that all the cell cultures in the world are actually just HeLa cells because people were like, oh, we're finding new immortal cell lines. And people were so excited. And then we found out they were just all HeLa cells. I totally believe that. Oh my God, that's crazy. That was a total tangent, but yeah, it was that part was. So lastly, I want to talk about a topic more specific to research in terms of what's the difference between using black bodies as vessels for research and the importance of using minorities in research studies. Because I think they're, well, they are two completely different things. And why is the latter so important? Like, why is it so important to have minorities in our research studies? I think, honestly, I think what you just said there, instead of using people for a study, just having them and having those things that you, like, really need. Like, you need informed, informed consent, and you need voluntary, like, actually voluntary participation. You can't coerce them into joining a study. Yeah, exactly. You have to just be like, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Right, exactly. But it is important to have minority representation. I think a lot more thought needs to go into it and a lot more representation in terms of opening up these spaces to make it so that minority populations want to volunteer and come into studies. And that's easy to say and harder, much, much harder to do. Because there's like a yeah. lack of a major lack of trust, of course, mm-hmm. um, because of stories like this. And then there's like not enough minority physicians to, you know, build bonds with their patients to encourage them to join studies. There's a lack of health literacy that we were talking mm-hmm. about, lack of access. So there's a whole slew of issues. Yeah, there definitely is. And I think like including minorities in research, it's so important because that research is going to benefit the people involved in it. It's the idea that you can't just research a bunch of white men and then say that that research is actually going to apply to a, a poor black woman. Like it's not because they're completely different people who have different things going on in their lives. So it's so important to have people of all different races and ages and genders and sexual orientations because the only way you're going to have like research that benefits certain populations is by having them involved in the research process. So do you have any last thoughts, Alicia, about this story? Since there's so many things to talk about. It's making me think about ethics, I think, and how I want to incorporate ethical, evidence-based, kind, empathetic values into my own practice and Mm -hmm. like how I really need to actively work on that because it's hard. It is difficult. Now that you start practicing how to be a doctor and then you're like, oh man, this is hard. <laughs> I Yeah. And I'm just thinking like it's difficult because a lot of the mistakes that we make are unintentional, but that doesn't make them like forgivable. Yeah. So being very intentional in the work that we do and like how what we say and how our actions land. I feel like that's more important than the intention so I'm yeah. throwing intention oh, sure. out the window because it doesn't matter 
really yeah, at all. It's what you do that matters. Yes. I think like my last, my last thing is always just how important talking about history is. And I, I understand for people that don't like history and don't want to learn about it, that they're like, there's just not enough time and I don't care, but you should care because these things are affecting what you're learning. And then it could happen again to your patients and you could probably be doing it and not even notice it. And that's why this is super important to talk about. Absolutely. All right. And with that, we just want to, you know, end by saying that if you like this episode, if you are interested in learning more about topics in history, you should subscribe to our podcast on all of the podcasting apps. And then if you are able to, please leave a rating and a review. And Apple Podcasts is still the best place for that. It just helps us so much with visibility. But if you can't do that, that's okay. We still love you. Uh, If you could just tell maybe a friend, your dog, your mom, tell anyone about the podcast. In case your dog wants to log into his podcasting app when you leave the house and he becomes a functional. I know your dog is secretly fiending for a podcast. So tell him about ours. And yeah, and help us grow our, our little base because we love you and we want to grow our community so we can have even more engaging conversations. And if you want to get involved in our community, then go ahead and follow us on social media. We are at From Scrubs to Scrubs on both Facebook and Instagram, and we post on Instagram pretty regularly. You can also check out our website for more information in our show notes and our sources, which is from Scrubs to Scrubs.com. And lastly, of course, here is to all the women like Henrietta Lacks, who have paved the way and fought for us to be where we are today. May we do the same for those who come after us. Okay. We'll see you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.